arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Okay, okay, this is the writer talking. I took a course one summer. The instructor reiterated not to use cliches. It's unoriginal, a shortcut, a cheap way to describe a scene. Tonight we conclude a world without her. A number of cliches could easily describe Ricardo's behavior. My late cousin once told me what my generation did not want to hear. The problem with all the old cliches is that they're all true, he'd tell me. I've come to believe that statement is true, but I think Ricardo's actions are applicable to many of life's power-grabbing situations, but certainly not to the extent that Ricardo carries out his obsessions. Perhaps he has become this way because he was granted the ultimate power. Even more significant is the constancy of Peter and Jeannie's relationship. Those personal attributes which make us human supersede the changes in life circumstances that Jeannie endures. Ultimate power, warping Ricardo, versus the intrinsic characteristics of Jeannie and Peter. Here are the concluding chapters, episode 5 of A World Without Her by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter 27. Jeannie pointed to both bedrooms at the end of the hall. She squeezed his hand. Both beds are messed up. They slept separately. Rollo called from the veranda. Breakfast is available outside, Miss Carlyle. Thank you, Rollo. The outside breezes crept up the staircase. Wearing an open shirt, he held her hand across the foyer to the veranda. Peter took in a deep breath as he peered toward the brilliant blue ocean. Then he turned back. The red and white flower arrangements in the white milk glass graced the clear tables. They sat in the white wicker chairs as Rollo brought them orange and papaya juice. Peter raised the chilled glass. May we never lose what we had last night. Jeannie clinked his glass. Peter Sturgis, you are a marked man. I am, am I? You and I have a future together, somewhere, somehow. She had a distant look as she gripped the glass. And I don't want to lose the moment. The image of you sitting here right now, the sun painting your face. Eternity. The moment is eternity. To eternity, she said, and they touched the glasses again. Rollo and two other servants slid breakfast plates onto the glass. Across the lawn, Curtis and Sybil emerged from the thicket at the edge of the hill. They wore beige jungle clothing and hiking boots. Curtis carried the packs. Jeannie called across the veranda. Well, you two are up early. We've been hiking the hills around the estate, said Sybil. Jeannie stood. An adventurous pair, aren't they? Rollo, would you be so kind as to get them something to drink? Ah, here are the sleepy heads now, Curtis, said Sybil. They climbed the veranda steps along the pool and approached the table as Rollo appeared with a huge pitcher of papaya juice. Rollo poured the drink and Curtis drank the liquid in a couple of seconds. Sybil smiled as she looked at Peter. Growing boy, said Peter. Rollo poured more juice. We were on the trail at six, replied Curtis. So what have you got planned today, Peter? Peter shrugged his shoulders and held Jeannie's hand. You want to go into town again? Well, that sounds good. Well, we're going swimming, said Sybil. 
We're going to see who can do 10 laps the fastest. I don't know the answer to that. Don't even try, Sybil. We'll see, she said as she slowly sipped her drink. I feel like I'm at summer camp. We need to make arrangements to leave here and to move the funds, said Janie. Done. And the private jet from Mexico City will get us to Ecuador. Then we can make the other connections to Indonesia and the island. The island? asked Peter. She raised her brows. Never you mind. I would say we start for Mexico City no later than tomorrow morning. Agreed. But today, let's get some R&R, Sib. You've been going non-stop since you started. She's going to need R&R after she loses to me, said Curtis. I think I'll get you a bathing suit, hotshot. She set down the glass. He thinks he can do anything better than me. Curtis tapped his finger to her arm. Well, excuse us. Have a good time, said Jeannie. Sybil took his hand and they hurried outside. We'll catch up with you later. Jeannie turned to Peter. It's good to see her relax. It's good to see you relax, said Peter, kissing her cheek. Jeannie's smile and her warm hand gave him a simple and abiding peace. Her eyes swept across the mountains as he nibbled on a piece of toast. I'm ditching Ricardo, Peter. It's the only option. You've opened up my life in ways I thought I'd forgotten. Thank you, Jeannie. I love it when you call me Jeannie. Not just Jean. He held her hand again. We'll head for Mexico City and to your mystery island. Start everything over. I like that. As Peter stared across the blue horizon below the hills, he imagined the rugged Rocky Mountain peaks, and he tried to understand how Ricardo could just order up new existences. Maybe Ricardo would grow bored if he could not find Jeannie, and maybe he would return to Cibola and let them live out their lives peacefully in this reality. Chapter 28 Sybil swiped the wooden badminton racket and set the hot pink birdie disappearing into the darkened sky. Curtis crossed his arms as it landed on the grass behind them. I can't see anything. Well, just as well, you won't lose another game. Ah, is that right? Curtis grinned and ducked under the net. Well, at least you haven't beaten me at cards. Are you challenging me to another game of cards? She asked. As a matter of fact, I am. She heard some commotion on the veranda. Several servants backed out the door. Someone dropped glasses or dishes. Mitchell and his men, holding handguns up in the air, herded the servants across the veranda. Mitchell! Oh, he's looking for Peter! Mitchell, wearing a blue baseball cap and a yellow and green party shirt, ran down the veranda steps and lumbered toward them. Where is he? Who? asked Sybil. That little bastard's old man, said Mitchell. Watch your mouth, fat boy. Mitchell squinted. Listen, I'll make this simple and things will go easy for everyone. You just tell me where Sturgis is. He ain't here. You ought to be able to see that for yourself. Shut up. Mitchell smashed the gun barrel against Curtis's head. Curtis fell to his knees and tumbled face down on the grass. Curtis, bleeding on the forehead, regained his balance. He lunged forward and landed several punches into Mitchell's stomach. Mitchell coughed and keeled over, but his men quickly restrained Curtis under the arms. Mitchell staggered to his feet. You're going to wish you were never born, boy. Curtis kicked both legs upward, sending Mitchell onto his backside. One of the men helped him up. Mitchell then descended upon Curtis, demanding to know about Peter. He pounded his midsection and face, but Curtis refused to talk. Mitchell dragged Sybil and Curtis to the veranda and tied them both to a wicker chair. 
Then he pulled out a knife and flipped the ultra-thin blade at Sybil's neck. One slip of this thin blade and you'll slowly bleed to death until you become a cold, stiff corpse. Jeannie's midnight eyes were focused on Peter. The ivory dove necklace hung across her tanned skin as she glided in her green cotton dress bare at the shoulders around the table. Below the treehouse restaurant's wooden railing, pink fluted lanterns were strung through the branches and tourists passed along the gray cobblestone street below. She put her hand on his shoulder. The island, Peter, is off New Zealand. Ah, down under. Way down. He'll never find us. Ricardo is more than resourceful. Let him have his women, his power. She put her arms around his neck and teased him with her lips. Have you ever been to France, Mr. Peter? Oh, now I'm Mr. Peter. This time she fully kissed him. Then she produced a wide-open smile. Well? No, I've never been to France. What's France like? French, she said with a subtle laugh. Oh, that's good to know, Jeannie. I bet it's very French. He pecked at her lips. Stop it, she said, returning the peck. Then she took off the necklace and placed it over his head. Looks charming on you, darling. And I bet Spain is very Spanish. Well, as a matter of fact, it is, she said, turning and grabbing her purse. Leaving so soon? I have to use the facilities. I'll be right here. He watched the green dress sway between the tables to the bamboo frame restroom door. Then he took out one of the cigars he had bought in the marketplace earlier that afternoon. And as he puffed, he thought about Melvin, back in the United States. Melvin never thought Peter would establish a relationship with Jeannie. Maybe he would contact Melvin when he and Jeannie made it to New Zealand. He alternated glances between the restroom and the street and thought about Ricardo's ability to change realities. In his mind, he retraced the whole scenario from the plaza. By now, a reasonable man would have forgotten about Jeannie and returned with Martin de Cibola. Peter stood and leaned over the railing. Tourists, loaded down with bags and boxes as if they were Christmas shopping, trekked along the cobblestones. Her necklace dangled from his neck. Peter grinned and lifted the ivory inlaid in the palm of his hand. Then he checked his analog watch with the luminous dial. Ten minutes had passed since she left the table. He rounded the table and moved across the restaurant. Jeannie, are you all right? He asked as he knocked on the bamboo frame restroom door. No one answered. He thrust open the door and rushed inside. His heart beat rapidly as he looked into the mirror and saw no one in the stalls. He hurried back into the restaurant, still searching the room for her, and he slid up to the bar. The little dark-haired bartender listened as he blurted out Jeannie's description. Then he cornered the restaurant manager. Jeannie sat safely back at the table and looked down at the street. He closed his eyes briefly and hurried over to her. She turned, smiling. Peter? Well, I couldn't find you. His eyes were teary. I got some more wine, she furried her brow. Did you think I had left? Peter shook his head and glanced at the moist, chilled bottle as he sat. I keep getting these... Bad feelings about Ricardo rolling in here and snatching you away. While Ricardo has his hands full up at Mammoth Lake, he couldn't care less about me. He's replaced me, Peter. Don't worry. She put her arms around him. I'm not going anywhere. Sometimes it seems too good to be true. That's because it is, she said, kissing him on the neck. Come on, Peter. Have another glass of wine and we'll go out dancing somewhere. The night is young. The effects of the wine wore off with the dancing. Sweating, Peter raised his hands into the air as the dance ended. 
and the brightly colored lights flashed around the packed second floor hall. Then the crisp calypso music started again. She helped him learn some of his dance steps. He peered through the haze at the blue neon rim wall clock, now past three o'clock in the morning. He grabbed Jeannie's hips, about to lift her into the air, when he felt a sharp pain in his left side, followed by two more quick jolts to the legs below the knee. Then he lost his balance and fell to the dusty floor. As the music blasted and people continued dancing, someone kicked his head. Something slammed into his forehead and he rolled to the right. Holding his bloodied face, he clawed his way up. Across the room, at least a dozen dancing couples separated him from Jeannie. Mitchell and his people dragged her screaming from the noisy hall. The music blast muffled Peter's shouting. He pushed forward as they took Jeannie through the doorway and out of sight. He scraped his way outside and leaped up the wood stairway. The music faded behind him as he ran into the empty street's cooler air. Jeannie! Jeannie! He turned indecisively, scanned the street, and again called her name into the night. Jeannie! People stared as he shouted for her down the cobblestones, accidentally pushing the passerby, and then he tripped into the vendor stands. For almost an hour, he scoured the streets and the alleyways. He wandered onto the beach just before dawn and collapsed into the sand. Grasping her necklace, he sat with his head in his hands. The waves broke as they had 24 hours ago, and the stars still shone above. An incessant loneliness settled over the beach as he cried. Ricardo had sent his people down here as if Jeannie were a piece of property. He worried that she would be gone forever. Somehow, he had to find her before Ricardo sought his revenge. At midday, the cab slowed at the estate and his throat tightened. The drivers stared at him in the rearview mirror. Peter glanced at the photo, clipped to the visor, and ordered him to wait. Fatigue slowed him down as he opened the taxi door and stepped into the warm air. He hurried across the grass, jogged by the pool, and up the veranda steps. The glass tables were gone. The helicopter was missing from the pad. He yanked on the handles, but the main doors of the house were locked. Inside, white sheets covered the furniture. He gently hit the window glass, his eyes aching and his mind numb. The sun heightened the green mountain ridges, the flowers still bloomed, and their fragrances wafted through the air. Without Jeannie by his side, nothing else mattered. He sat on the veranda steps for the longest time. Aside from Jeannie's safety, Peter prayed for Curtis. He checked the empty grounds one more time and then wandered back to the taxi. Nobody here? asked the driver in broken English. Take me back to town. They're all gone. Chapter 29 Peter chomped continually on a wad of mint gum. He slumped in the back seat and requested in a low voice that the taxi driver take him to a hospital back in the city. Less than a half an hour later, still chewing the gum, he ran through the front doorway of a pink stucco two-story structure with gray cement trim. He found the central medical clinic's battered wooden desk wedged between the iron staircases. After a few minutes of bantering back and forth with a gray-haired nurse, in broken Spanish, she conveyed to him that Curtis had been found beaten and unconscious, but alive, in an irrigation ditch behind a row of huts outside the city. Peter held up a bottle of water in his left hand and walked briskly with a hospital aide down the worn brown linoleum hallway into a high-ceiling room with three other patients. Curtis, half awake, his cheekbones bruised and swollen, whispered as Peter bent over, 
gone. He, he gone. He took her away. Gone. They took her away. Curtis, Sybil or Jeannie? Both. Curtis slowly rolled his eyes. Mitchell beat me with a gun. As Curtis drifted off, Peter stepped to the old wood casement window. The glass cracked and unwashed. The unpolished cars and some dented and smoky buses rumbled loudly on the uneven street below. A young, dark-haired oriental doctor with pale white skin entered the room a few minutes later, and Peter introduced himself. Hello, Mr. Sturgis. The x-rays reveal no permanent damage. We are all very fine here. Peter looked into his dark eyes. When can I get him out of here? We will have to see how he comes out of this. Yes, yes. Peter nodded. This clinic lacked proper equipment and facilities. To properly assess Curtis's condition required a move to the United States. While Curtis slept, Peter returned to the wall phones in the lobby. All the while, he studied the people entering the hospital. He took several swigs of water and then placed the cap back on top. Then he mashed the gum. He punched in the phone number Sybil had given him back in Los Angeles, but the line did not connect. Neither did all the other numbers. He hurled the gum out the open window and slammed the phone as he sat on the wall couch. His tears melted into Jeannie's ivory necklace in his hands. Her lips and touch were vivid in his thoughts as the warm wind pushed across the hospital lobby. If only he had stayed closer, if only he had not let her go. Curtis's voice grew louder, as if ascending into consciousness. Peter opened his eyes in the bright sun. My God, I thought you were going to die, Curtis. You thought I was a goner, huh? After what happened, sure, he stood again. What did happen? Well, Mitchell and his men, they just showed up at the estate. They took Jean and Sybil away. Have you heard anything about Sybil? Nothing on her, either. They didn't hold me back, I would have killed him. They kept asking me, asking about you. I can't remember being thrown on the side of the road, but the doctor said I was. I understand. Look, we have to get back to L.A. once you're okay. We'll just try again. I'm all for that. I'm going to call Melvin. He's the key. He can book us on a bus back to L.A. and maybe get us a hotel room until we locate Jeannie again. Or maybe she'll contact you, Peter. Maybe. As he walked back to the window, he wanted to strangle Ricardo. He would need to perform the deed in a way that he would not serve time. Ending Ricardo's life in a remote place would be ideal. Chapter 30 With sharp dialogue, Ricardo had captured the scene action from a number of angles. The Sinkofits gathered around, awaiting his opinion, listening carefully as he gauged the meaning behind the shot and why he had set up specific perspectives. Then he called for a half an hour break, excused himself, and hurried from the set. He crossed the boardwalk to the Red House, appropriated for this remote portion of the movie. Checking his watch, he moved faster, opened the door, and locked it securely. Once he had searched all the rooms, he placed a call to Mitchell. He picked up the remote, flipped on the TV monitor, and paced the floor as the line rang. Bravo 16. Brief me. You ignorant fool, you'll finish this job first. Is she dead? Oh, she will be. I keep hearing that, Mitchell. Check again. Don't mess up like you did last time. Oh, she won't survive this. I want her dead or you can forget about working anywhere. 
shot them nonstop for 72 hours, Ricardo. She can't go on much longer. So you keep telling me. I told you I wanted this done by this morning. You get up there and ram it down her throat if you have to. Ricardo flipped the channel and shook his head. Oh, Ricardo, this will do it. There's heavy-duty stuff in that bag. I'm watching cable, Mitchell. I want to hear them announce that Gene Carlisle is dead. I will personally call you. The hell you will. You make sure you're away from that house. You understand? Ricardo hung up the phone, but as he turned, Martin stood next to an open closet door. What the hell are you doing in here? As if you don't have enough power. You should have just left this reality a long time ago, Ricardo. And now you're just going to kill her. With no ramifications, get her out of the way, and make Sturgis suffer at the same time. You are not my judge, Martin. Martin gazed at the phone. Maybe I should be. Maybe I should call the rescue squad and save her life. Ricardo slid out a silver-framed gun from beneath his blazer. I don't think so. So, it comes to this, does it? The one who has supported you all these hundreds of years is now another useless piece of debris in your wake. I have no intention of killing you, old friend, but I won't let you stop me from making Sturgis suffer. Imagine him making it all the way back to Mexico. Well, you took his wife. They were happily married in New York. And just because you were attracted to her, he and the old man tried to ruin me. They had files from RICOM. Other people have stood up to you and you just left for Cibola. What's happened to you? Listen to yourself. You and I, Martin, are going to wait it out. I will call down and postpone shooting until tomorrow morning. Sit down and watch the set. This will be national news. Martin said nothing, followed Ricardo's instructions, and sat on the couch. Ricardo gripped the gun and contemplated Martin lying dead on the floorboards. Martin had pushed him too far. One more insult, one more order or insinuation, and he would put a bullet into Martin's skull and travel back to Cibola alone. One of the doctors announced Curtis's pending discharge from the hospital exactly one week after the beating. Peter wiped his brow in the heat as Melvin listened on the lobby phone. We have to return to the United States, Melvin. The police think I tried to kill Jeannie before. Try the bus, Peter. I need private transportation. You shouldn't have gone down there. You're trapped. Down the darkened corridor, a few nurses started up the stairs. Peter paced in front of the phone. No, I don't care what I have to do. I'm going to get back to Los Angeles. Well, what do you want me to do, Peter? Get a message to Sybil. There must be someone at that studio who could relay a message to her. She can get us out of here. And then what? Chase down Jeannie again. Ricardo will be watching her like a hawk. You need to get back to the United States and establish a new identity. I have other priorities, Melvin. Like what? Killing Ricardo? Peter remained silent. His hatred of Ricardo had overridden even his love for Jeannie. You have to accept that our old lives are over, Peter. Thought you wanted to get to Cibola. That's a pipe dream unless we had help. Peter closed his eyes. I have to get back to the room. How is Curtis? He'll be all right now. I think Mitchell thought he had killed Curtis. He leaned against the wall and pinched the bridge of his nose. I'm just so worried about Jeannie. 
somehow I'll get you out and you'll have to start a new life. I will. After I've done what I have to do. The cooler air spread over the city with the setting sun. Curtis pulled the white sheet over his legs. Peter smiled at his son. Doctor said another couple days, Curtis. I'll be glad we can get out of this place. You think Melvin will call Sybil? I don't know. Melvin wants me to start a new life. Well, maybe he's right. Peter shook his head. Come on. Who knows what he did to Sybil? How can you just sit back there? Listen, I like Sybil a lot, but Peter, we can't stop these people. Ricardo's too powerful. You're wanted for attempted murder. He's got you. Checkmate. No, not checkmate. Peter walked away from the bed and across the room. He turned before stepping into the corridor. I won't accept that. You think I care about my own life now that he's destroyed it? He drifted into the darkened corridor, stretching his tight back muscles. His head throbbed. A group of clinic workers and one of the doctors stood next to a guy holding a newspaper. They jabbered in Spanish and turned as Peter approached. A large dark-haired woman cried and another man repeatedly shook his head. The doctor held the paper against his chest as he walked toward Peter. I am so sorry, senor. Sorry about what? asked Peter. When Peter saw Jeannie's picture upside down on the front page, he grabbed the paper and turned it around. Although written in Spanish, the headline's meaning shook him. Jean Carlo es muerte. He dropped the paper onto the hallway floor and back toward the wall. His heart thumping, he placed his palms against the cold, dark plaster and slid to the floor. For a few moments, he stared into space, his body numb. And when he removed the dove necklace from his pocket, tears gently edged down his cheeks. He held it against his chest, raised his knees and buried his head between his arms. His thoughts drifted back to the marketplace when he had bought the necklace and then visualized Capistrano. Seeing her again had been a miracle, but the hope and promise had been summarily extinguished by Ricardo's perverted grip. Peter raised his head. The group had scattered and the doctor stood alone, still holding the paper. Is there anything I can do to help you, senor? Peter clutched the necklace, wiped his eyes on his sleeve, and then walked to the doctor. He stared at the paper again and looked into the doctor's dark eyes. Get my son out of here and back to the United States. Chapter 31 Every morning for weeks he stepped from Melvin's guesthouse slider and hiked under the towering evergreens to the lake. His beard and hair were longer now, and the tattered olive army jacket he wore really left his back. At the water's edge on the boulders, he took his customary place on one of the wood benches Melvin and Jill had placed along the mountain vista. He stared across the glistening ripples for hours, followed the individual wind gusts across the water, and remained obsessively attentive to inane details that gave a semblance of meaning to his lonely life. More recently, he had dwelled on Westerly. In his head, he went over Jonathan's baseball games play-by-play or he would remember reading bedtime stories to Petey and Marissa. Then he would pause to track the birds in flight over the water and smile as an image of Jeannie in the Puerto Vallarta marketplace re-entered his mind. Enamored with her necklace, he held it gingerly in his cold hands as he repeatedly traced the outline of the ivory dove with his fingertips. He had nowhere to go now, no plans, and nothing he wanted from life. Even Cibola and its secrets were more than 300 miles to the southwest, hidden in the Colorado mountains. Peter, said Curtis from behind. Peter did not bother to turn. Peter, 
I just read the morning paper. That's nice. There's something important. Peter ran his teeth along his beard and continued to commune with the blue lake and distant mountains. There's nothing I want to know. Nothing I care about. Just leave me alone to my own thoughts. Curtis rounded the bench. Peter looked up at his son's young face. He smiled and wondered what Curtis thought of his mountain man appearance. Peter, Ricardo is flying to Colorado tomorrow night. Peter faced the lake for a few more seconds before he slowly turned. His hands were still in his pockets. He peered into Curtis's blue eyes. We're in Colorado. Curtis's foggy breath moved through the frigid air as he spoke. A ski resort. Melvin thinks he must be ready to go to Cibola. If they were going to Cibola, they would just go. You don't know that, said Curtis. Peter nodded. You're right. I thought this might shake you off the damn bench. Do you know this for sure? I checked with Sybil in Texas, Peter. It's true. And she told me that getting us out of Mexico was the least she could do. I don't know what we would have done. Then you want to go to Colorado? Asked Curtis. Peter squinted and panned the lake like a security camera. I have every intention of going to Colorado. I have every intention of making things right again. Chapter 32 Munda, Colorado, December 1st, 2000 At the ski lodge bar, Martin gripped a thick glass of heavy eggnog laced with warm brandy. Since Gene's death, he had only spoken to Ricardo about business matters. The incident with the gun up at Mammoth had been unsettling. He consistently lost sleep now, and Ricardo's tethering on the edge of stability bothered him. Ricardo had talked about using a helicopter to reach Cibola, only 40 miles away, and start over once again. Regardless of which reality he chose, Ricardo had committed murder yet again, playing executioner with an innocent life. All these years, Martin had not challenged him and had enjoyed the benefits of his propitious power. Twice before in the last century, Martin had attempted to persuade the entities to allow him to find his own alternate reality. But somehow, Ricardo, having been the first inside Cibola, had been given precedence. Through the diamond pane window, Ricardo and a light blue ski parker carried his own skis. He opened up the ski lodge door and checked around the room. Ah, there he is, getting sloshed at the bar, Martin set down the eggnog. If you've come to ask me to go skiing, forget it. Ricardo leaned the skis against the bar and removed his headgear. Come on, Martin, what's your problem? Are you still upset about the overdose? She's gone, get over it. Martin stared at his wispy hair and wind-beaten face. Are we going to Cibola? Anxious, anxious, is that what you want, old friend? What reality do you want to choose? Me, choose. I've let you choose realities before, Martin. Come on, what do you want? I'll get it all for you. I desire nothing, nothing at all. You're being a wet noodle, little wimp. Ricardo grabbed his skis and then turned. I'll be up on the slopes. If you're smart, you'll relax too, Martin. He traipsed across the lounge as if it were his own property, opened the doors and stepped outside. Martin went back to the diamond window and savored the thick, rich eggnog. In the low winter light with its hidden shadows, Ricardo proceeded to the lifts. The cool mountain air invigorated Ricardo as the morning progressed. Red and blue gondolas moved seamlessly along the suspended cable. Skiers cut thin trails over the sun-sparkled snow below, and in the distance the snow-capped peaks 
beckoned under the steely sky. A few more trips down the hill and he would return to the lodge. Maybe inviting Martin into the hot tub with a few extra women would ease his hostility. He dug the poles in the snow and adjusted his amber sun goggles and pushed away. As the wind whizzed against his face, the exhilarating speed heightened his senses and he smiled. The slope gave him a power he relished, driving him even faster. To his right, another skier in a red ski jacket skied precariously close. Ricardo veered to the left and slowed, but this fool matched his every move down the hill. Get out of here! Get away from me! The jerk taunted him by skiing even closer. For a moment, he contemplated following the moron. The ski lodge's fireplace smoke billowed into the thin air only a half mile away, so he pivoted down an adjacent trail. Instead of returning to his cabin, he now wanted to retrace his run down the hill. He picked up his skis and moved quickly toward the gondolas. All the while, he scanned the slopes for the guy in the red coat. If only Mitchell were here, he would have the skier beaten senseless. He waited an inordinate time for the vacant gondola. When the lift stopped, he stepped inside alone, set his skis against the window, and sat down. The car jolted forward, and he closed his eyes. Martin's attitude bothered him. Martin needed a new reality with some power for himself. That would keep him happy. The car shot forward as the moving cable pulled toward the small station atop the mountain. It gently rocked over the support poles embedded in the craggy rock slope far below. A second and stronger jolt startled him as the gondola shook and then stopped. He held the window support pole as he struggled to look outside. Sunlight burst into the car, but the cable cranked upward again. He pressed his face against the glass and looked back toward the lodge window. Martin, still in his bright green sweater, stood in front of the lodge with another man in a blue parker. Ricardo shielded his eyes and fumbled for his sunglasses. He returned to the seat. The car rose higher above the slope now, and the cable then dipped over the white-capped rapids through the canyon walls below. He sat back against the wall and closed his eyes. That last run had left him fatigued. Perhaps he should have gone back to the cabin. Again, something halted the car's progress and it rocked in midair. He stood and smacked the intercom as the overhead light went out. The car twisted as if some great winds were slamming against it. He pounded on the intercom button. Come on, I'm stuck up here, damn it! He scrambled to the window and pushed his open hands against the glass. Get me the hell out of here! Soon the temperature dropped. He took off his gloves and checked the cold heater coil. The outer door slid open and the cold blast blew inside. The guy in the red parker, his sun goggles reflecting Ricardo's face and blue ski suit, leaped inside. What do you think you're doing, you moron? Do you know who I am? The guy slowly took off his mittens and stuffed them in his parker pocket. Then he pulled back his hood strings and peeled back the hood. Unsure of what he wanted, Ricardo retreated to the intercom again and pounded the button. Who are you? The stark terror in Ricardo's eyes surprised Peter as he slowly pulled off the goggles. I think you know who I am. Ricardo's jaw dropped as he backed against the gondola wall. His cowering eyes were wide open and his parker moved with each repeated deep breath. Look, Sturgis, he said, grinning as his cheek twitched. I'll make some kind of deal with you. Peter advanced from the open door and crossed the gondola toward the cowering figure. He grabbed the blue ski suit at the shoulders. 
Ricardo made no attempt to struggle and immediately pleaded for leniency. Sturgis, she had a drug problem in this reality. It wasn't my fault. They did it at Cibola. They made her that way in this reality. You have to believe me, Sturgis. I can bring you back there to where you came from. I'm the only one who can do it. Peter cocked his arm and popped Ricardo's jaw. Ricardo's head knocked against the wall panels. He slipped down the curved metal wall and onto the floor. Ricardo pleaded, but Peter relentlessly kicked his face and head. Blood formed in Ricardo's nostrils and in the corner of his mouth. Peter pulled at the parker and then threw Ricardo against the window. Sturgis, I'll make you anything you want to be, he said in a raspy voice. I, I beg of you. I beg of you. Peter, using his back and legs, plowed the ashen-faced Ricardo along the window toward the open door. With his teeth locked firmly, he positioned Ricardo in front of the door. Ricardo clutched the door frame. Peter's grip kept Ricardo from free-falling into the canyon below. Ricardo produced a knife and slashed into Peter's parker, opening up a long wound in his right arm. He moved wildly toward Peter, his arms spinning like a lawnmower blade. Peter leaped back, but Ricardo wielded a small blade and sliced the fabric and parker lining. Blood saturated the inside of the parker as Peter winced at an intense pain in his thigh. With his back to the canyon, Ricardo, his hateful, evil eyes focused on Peter, advanced with the knife blade glistening in the sun. You should never have challenged me, Sturgis. It was no match. Ricardo thrust the knife forward, but Peter's pain ignited his adrenaline. He swung his boot, catching Ricardo behind the knee. Ricardo's leg buckled momentarily. He lost his balance and lashed wide. Peter batted his folded hands across Ricardo's neck. Ricardo collapsed to the floor and the knife spun like a top across the surface. Peter hoisted him up by the boots and flipped his body. Ricardo squirmed and screamed as Peter kicked him across the floor. Then, like a blocking lineman, he threw his shoulder into Ricardo's side. Ricardo's body slid over the edge and tumbled into the cold, biting air. Peter peered over the ledge. Ricardo's bright blue snowsuit gradually disappeared toward the jagged rocks and the cascading water below. Short of breath, the air stinging his lungs, Peter lingered but remained mesmerized by the canyon walls. Ricardo's extended lifespan had ended, and his smooth, perfect face quickly became a diminished, painful memory. Chapter 33 Peter clawed his way on top of the gondola. It rocked gently high above the rocks below. Someone might have seen Ricardo fall to his death. He pushed the cable wires together, reconnecting the electrical module. The gondola clicked and then continued up the mountain. A number of people were outside the lodge and walkway above. He swung back in the car and closed the doors. His eyes were fixed on the river and he remained at the window, hardly believing that Ricardo had really fallen to his death. A small crowd had gathered near the log buildings at the summit. They watched the gondola reach the top. Through the front gondola window, Curtis and a red parker stood with another man with yellow sun goggles. A blue and white helicopter, blades spinning and swirling the snow on the ground, touched down about 50 yards away. The gondola stopped and rocked. Peter slid open the door as Curtis ran forward, but Peter's eyes were focused on the other man as he took off his goggles. Martin, I'm bringing you to Cibola, he yelled through the helicopter noise. Peter produced a lip smile and patted his son on the shoulder. They followed Martin through the wind to the waiting chopper and climbed up the extended ramp. 
No one mentioned anything about Ricardo falling from the gondola. The helicopter door hummed shut and the chopper lifted off. Peter continued to stare at the river gorge. Far below, Ricardo's lifeless body lay in the snow as the cold wind tore through the canyon. The gorge disappeared over the first mountain ridge. He feared that Ricardo, having possessed so much power, might suddenly bounce back into some other reality. What if he's not dead? asked Peter. Martin's dark eyes intensified. He's dead, Peter. Immortality lasts until it's over. Why didn't you age? Martin's mouth curled at the corner as he shook his head. It's the way they designed it. Apparently, if you're going to bounce around between worlds, it's best not to be growing old. Maybe for us mortals, Martin, growing old and dying is a natural way of things. Martin thought for a moment. I believe you may be right, Peter. Look what Ricardo became. It was time for him to die. The chopper shot through the skies as the snowy peaks passed below. Curtis leaned toward Martin. Who's in charge of this Cibola? Martin pressed his lips and slowly nodded. You mean the entities? I don't see how these entities did any of this. Who are they? Where this takes place is some kind of dimensional bubble. It's a remainder of an ancient galactic civilization outpost, abandoned before human existence on Earth. More than just a machine, the bubble intelligence kept functioning. As best that we could figure from communicating with that machine, this civilization changed realities at will. There's an infinite number of possible worlds, my friends. They live between worlds rather than reality. Probably why we didn't age. Perhaps something went wrong in one of the realities, as with Ricardo just now. After a long silence, Peter spoke. Why did you stay with Ricardo? Martin peered out the window, pressing his lips as his face tensed. He shook his head. I can't give you one good reason. Five hundred years and I don't know, but there is one thing I do know. Regardless of all my reasons, I'm accountable, and sometimes, Peter, it's not good to have infinite possibilities. The pilot executed a tricky landing in a small ledge clearing. No roads existed out here, and Martin said they were 25 miles from the lodge and over 60 miles from the nearest city. They could not lower the ramp and would have to jump from the side door 10 feet into the snow. Peter followed Martin and leaped into the drifts, his wounds still throbbing, but Curtis stayed inside the open door. Come on, Curtis, Peter yelled. I'm not going, Peter. I'm going to Texas. Peter paused and then yelled up to the helicopter. I want you to come back with me, Curtis. You can come back and still have Sybil. I belong in this reality, Peter. Can't you see that? The temptation of other realities was too great for Ricardo. Promise me one thing. What's that? He asked as the blade spun above. Whatever you decide to do with your life in this reality, live up to your potential. Do it upright, Curtis. I get it. He reached his hand out. I love you, Dad. The tears were cold on his cheeks. I love you, too. Martin signaled the pilot, and the helicopter ascended into the blue Colorado sky. Curtis waved in the open doorway as the chopper circled the ridge and went out of sight. The wind produced a melancholy dirge over the snowy slopes. Martin put his hand on Peter's shoulder. Let's go, Peter. The cold air, punctuated by a slight wind, grew silent as he followed Martin along a narrow ledge set within the rugged mountain expanse and overlooking dozens of other peaks. 
At this higher elevation, the sparse air made breathing tricky, and the mountain extended several thousand feet down the slope. Are you sure this is the place, Martin? I am. They traveled another ten minutes along the edge. Martin climbed up a tiny grouping of snow-capped rocks and pushed his hand slowly into the hardened ridge. He turned and nodded with a huge smile. Then he extended his hand. Peter grasped it tightly and stepped forward. He grinned as his hand oozed through the solid rocks. Less than a minute later, they were within a mass of fluctuating colored points that brightened. He floated next to Martin and entered a mammoth, shiny chrome sphere. Where are they? You'll sense where they are, Peter. During the next few minutes, he began to realize that someone or something dwell within that sphere and inside his own thoughts. Bright green hoops encircled Martin's body. The machine possessed a consciousness and an intuitive understanding of needs and suggestions. They were cognizant of Ricardo's death and assumed that Martin had just taken his place. Martin insisted that Peter be placed back in the first reality, but formed without Cibola. Peter experienced an odd riptide movement and no longer saw Martin. He thought about Westerly, Jeannie, and the kids as he clutched the dove necklace. As he drifted in and out, he sensed forward momentum. Only when he saw the outlines of buildings did he understand the transformation. A developing image of Main Street in Westerly, New York, spread out before him. The tree-lined mountains, like a plum blanket in the late afternoon light, hovered over the town. For several minutes, he stood firmly on the cement sidewalk and took in the clean air. He leaped up the sidewalk and thrust his fist skyward. Like an escaped animal from the zoo, he zigzagged into the middle of the road and rushed up to the traffic light across from Eddie's all-night gas station. Eddie held the pump and looked twice. Hey, citizen of the year, stop your jaywalking. Eddie! Peter slipped across the concrete and grabbed him by the shoulders. Geez, Eddie, you're not mad at me. Well, should I be? Don Williams popped his head from the car at the other pumps. Peter, Jonathan played one hell of a game this afternoon. Congratulate him for me, will you? The goosebumps went up Peter's arms. Sure, sure, thanks, Donnie. And tell that wife of yours that my wife is bugging me about us getting together for that cookout. Right, sure. Oh, cookout at Peter's, asked Eddie. I'll spread the word. Peter grinned and looked south of town toward the developments in Spring Street. He slowly wandered from the gas station, but soon picked up the pace along the sidewalk as he held his hands into the air and shouted again. Near the edge of his development, he stopped at the stone wall and darted down the winding sidewalk along the newly constructed homes. When he neared the cul-de-sac, the edge of his Tudor-style facade appeared around the corner. Bikes were strewn across the driveway and a few toys deposited on the grass. Then he stopped, unable to remember why he had taken such a long walk after supper. Rusty raced around the garage and jumped hard enough to almost knock him over. All right, Rusty, I went for a walk. Good dog. He laughed and the dog trailed him up the driveway. Kids were not out front, but he did see them as he opened the porch door. Jeannie stood at the stove. Jeannie! He heard the kids, but Jeannie in her faded jeans and gray jersey, marking the westerly bicentennial, captivated him. She smiled as he approached. Did you have a good walk, Mr. Sturgis? Jeannie, he said in a soft voice, but the tears streamed down his face. Then he hugged her tightly. Jeannie, Peter, what's wrong? Jeannie, you're here. He looked into her dark eyes, touched her bouncy hair, and then picked her up in his arms. 
Jeannie, oh God. Peter, you've been gone 20 minutes. Are you all right? I think so. She put her hand on his forehead as he set her down. Hmm, no temperature, just crazy. Daddy, Daddy, yelled Marissa as she came in through the sliders and followed at a close distance by Petey in his baseball glove. Jonathan and Wendy were in the lounger chairs out back. Peter held his two youngest children. Petey pulled out a silver necklace inlaid with ivory. What's this, Daddy? Did you buy this for Mom? asked Marissa. Peter stood and held the necklace in his hands. Then he slowly lifted it over Jeannie's long brown hair and placed it around her neck. Jeannie smiled, her dark eyes moist. Peter, this is beautiful, but I don't understand. He put his arms around her again and stared into her beckoning brown eyes. Neither do I. Then I suggest, husband, that we get on with the rest of our lives. Epilogue in Greece, December 1st, 2000. The yellow sports car roared up the hill and Ricardo put the towel around his shoulders as Martin skidded to a stop. Martin leaped over the side and walked into the pool area. Ricardo checked his watch. Martin, where have you been? Does it matter? Just trying to plan the day. Do you want me to set your schedule for the rest of the week? Martin smiled. Yes, that would be good, Ricardo, unless you don't enjoy your employment with me anymore. Of course I do, Martin. I would never do anything to jeopardize our relationship. Good, said Martin, looking up at the villa. You should always remember one thing, Ricardo. When you appreciate a person's dignity, then you've acknowledged his humanness. That, my old friend, is the only way humanity will survive. Let me add, justice is served to the list of my clichés. All's well that ends well. It's good enough for Shakespeare. Just like starting over, John Lennon. Next week, we go to the edge of a massive intelligence bureaucracy where things that are supposed to be top secret are revealed to two average people. And the journey begins. The novel is Green Haze. I'm Robert P. Fitton. Thank you for listening to A World Without Her. My next destination is St. Augustine, Florida, the oldest city in the USA. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.